Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, fellow cannabis enthusiasts, and welcome to the inaugural edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Bobby Black, former senior editor and columnist for High Times and the executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. In each episode, I'll be choosing a different item or items from our museum collection of around 500 rare antiques, artifacts, and artworks, and welcoming a different guest to help me examine its unique significance and place in cannabis history. But before we begin delving into the museum collection, I thought it would be helpful to spend this episode providing you all some background information on the project. What exactly is the World of Cannabis Museum Project? Who started it? And what's it all about? To answer those questions and many others, I sat down with my partner, the museum's founder and curator, Jair Veleman, at his home in Amsterdam this past November. This is that interview. Coming to you live from Amsterdam here in the Netherlands and here with uh, my good friend and uh, my new partner, Mr. Jair Veleman. What's up, Jair? Hey, Bobby. How are you guys? Uh, great to... Uh be in the podcast and uh, be able to, uh, to, to to do this for the first time with you. Yes, yeah, so uh, we have some, uh, some real cool news we want to talk about and get to this hour. So let's start off by talking a little about you, Jair. For those of you guys who don't know, uh, Jair is a cannabis entrepreneur, activist, and uh, philanthropist, you could say. Uh, he's been involved in a lot of successful companies. Uh, a lot of you guys may know him best from his time at Gavita Lighting. He was one of the co-owners there. Um, and uh, he's been involved in a lot of other exciting projects since then. To give us a little information about your background. Wow. Uh, I think my background is when I was, well, I, I, I smoked weed for when I was very young, I don't even dare to think I smoked my first joint when I was 12 or 13, got some giggles. Um, ended up growing wheat from when I was 16, so that's about 30 years ago now. Uh, and from that time progressed with just cultivating wheat in Holland. And at a certain point, going to uh, a grow shop, owning a grow shop, going to wholesale. Um, and then just kept progressing to magazines, uh, substrates and nutrients, trade shows, and I been through the whole spectrum of this industry and then progressed into lighting. And that was kind of where I had uh, the, the, the bingo moment that was being able to have the exciting time of building the, 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 the largest lighting company in the world, uh, also building the largest cannabis grows in the world uh, everybody knows things like canopy or tilray that we helped design and build uh, but also the smallest growers i mean in the beginning gavita wasn't there for the big one i mean it was a black market in the u.s when we came to the u.s and it was all about growing 
tomatoes and uh, <laughs> uh, in those days, and, and and we couldn't we couldn't have the discussion about cannabis. So we were having discussion about tomatoes, and everybody was smiling, and everybody <laughs> knew what was going on. But yeah, and we're going into Humboldt, and we've seen the mountains with all the grows on it, and uh, yeah, it was still like everybody who thinks that Murder Mountain is. Uh, a show that that goes too far or is not truthful. Well, I can tell you, I was there. It's very truthful. It's kind of correct. So, uh, <laughs> and I was there. It's kind of kind of been a fun ride of going to small little growers to the biggest growers in the world, and it was a very exciting time. And a couple of years ago, I I finally uh, well, I got the chance to sell the company, and that gave me the opportunity to really really go into the cannabis industry afterwards and not being auxiliary. Yeah, and you've gotten to, you're someone who's been kind of right in the middle of and at the crux of this transition between the outlaw past of cannabis culture and, and, and community and into the new industry, the, the corporate, the finance, the, the, uh, yeah. the, the business end of things. Yeah, no, well, I, I say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a stoner with a business sense. Uh, so you can't beat them. So to a certain degree, I have to join them. And I want to make sure that I, I've been in this industry for 30 years. And I think I, I have the right, like everybody who done things in this industry for a long time, I have the right to also make sure I, me and my family get paid for what we've done. And I think everybody should. And I know that's not true for everybody and that's not for everybody, but I think uh, if you have the chance and for everything you've done, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to actually make some money, but also make sure you give back. I mean, it's not about just making loads of money in cannabis. It's about making sure you and your family are fine, but also make sure that if she actually extract a good amount in this industry, that, that you start giving back to the community because that the community is also partly what helped you um, build, build your success. Absolutely. You know, uh, what you're saying about, you know, getting paid or whatever, that definitely hits home for me because I've been saying, you know, obviously I was at high times for over 20 years and I've, you know, worked with another number of other cannabis publications and other places. And, you know, uh, I've had a great, great run and I had a great time and, and met a lot of great people and done a lot of great work that I'm proud of. But, you know, uh, I, I'm sure it's no secret that being a journalist is not one of the highest paid uh, professions out there. Being a writer uh, and, or an editor is, uh, you know, it's uh, it's on the lower end of things financially, kind of. And, and I'm at a point in life where well, we're the same age. We're both 46. And yep. you're at that point in life where um, you're like, well, you know, like you said, I've given my whole life to this community, to this uh, ideal. And, you know, I, I want to be able to live comfortably and support my family, you know, like you're saying, you know, and you want to strive for something a little more. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you do it ethically, as long as you don't, you know, screw people over and, and, and kick people under the bus to get to be successful. No, I, I totally. I mean, everything I've done, uh, I can I can walk around with a straight face and uh, be OK with it, but also um make sure that you you actually embrace your community i mean i i am a stoner ceo i see a lot of uh, people wearing suits today that's okay i understand the, the change i understand the difference but um uh, i know those people try to phase us out and that's not going to happen i think our community is too strong and as long as we cling together we will have a strong base and uh, sure you will see some crumbling and things will change and things will never be the same and of course, everything was very cool in uh, 
uh, in the legacy market or in the black market because it was fun. It, it, it was kind of enjoyable. Everybody was kind of horrible and the police and this and that. It was also kind of exciting and fun. And I mean, um, to, to, to be on the less legal side of things. I mean, uh, I don't know for everybody, but I, I had some fun times. It was scary. And, and, yeah. And, there's there's definitely a uh, a bit of a romantic aspect to the outlaw part of it, yeah. uh, and I think that as we see ca- cannabis going more mainstream, uh, being more accepted, there's there's good and bad. And I've spoken about this and I've written about it. It's you know yes, it's good that people won't be thrown in jail and they won't lose their lives and lose their their property being seized and all those things. That's a good thing of legalization. It's good that. People will be will not be arrested for for possession or this or that or whatever, but we do lose something in the transition too. We lose we lose something because if it used to be that if you were if you smoked cannabis or you were involved with cannabis, it was because you truly loved it. It was part of who you were, and you were willing to risk your freedom to be part of that. And now it's just easy. It's very well, again, easy. Again, you, you know. also see it going from hippie to hipster. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the new thing, and, and cannabis is hip, and that is kind of for the people that, that love cannabis for a long time, is kind of a weird realization. And it's also in a time that, that and I think that's also got to do with, with a lot of things we're doing these days, is also make sure that that we don't lose that feeling, and that we actually make sure that it gets, um, that, that we educate the, the newbies in this industry about... Um, about the things that happened and make sure because they don't know they have no clue they don't know what happened the only time they came in is like oh you can make millions and like look at this and i'm like that's not the reason to come into cannabis i think i mean i came into cannabis for the for the for the love of the plant for the love of the product and and i blaze i'm sitting here blazing i mean didn't obama say like inhaling was the point the point (laughs) (laughs) yeah well well honoring the past and honoring the sacrifices of the outlaws that came before is at the heart of the new project that you are spearheading and uh you know i guess we should talk a little about that uh because it's it's really the reason i'm here in amsterdam um so tell us a little about world of cannabis and 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 where you came up with the idea well, it, it, I, I was sitting at home and kind of after selling my company, had a little bit of time on my hands. And um, well, the, the, uh, the first thing is I started looking for an object that, that I really wanted, the cannabis historical object. So I'm a sativa smoker. I love the haze. And uh, there is this object called the original haze poster from 1976, I believe. Um, and it was uh, a poster by the people that actually introduced the Hayes. They call the Hayes brothers. That's a whole story by itself that we won't go into deeply. But I was looking for that very specific poster, and it was a really hard thing to find. And um, when I started looking for the poster, I actually found a lot of other beautiful cannabis artifacts, and I couldn't really hold myself, and I would just start buying those. And... I got that whole feeling and I ended up being a real collector and for years I've been perching the internet and perching other collectors for artifacts but it wasn't just an artifact race I was just getting interested in the whole history because I figured out that a lot of the history that we're actually seeing as a community and that is written down on the internet is actually a lot of it is wrong 
And that kind of surprised me. And here in Amsterdam, we have a lot of people from the old days. And I started talking to like, like, hey, those people are just hanging around. And um, maybe I should talk to them. So you end up, uh, that, that's the one disadvantage when you do a history project. You end up talking to a lot of old people. <laughs> because that's where you can find the real truthful stories. And I ended up to trying to find people like Neville, um, um, Sam the Skunk Man, and trying to find, uh, trying to talk to John Sinclair. I hope that still will go up. John, you know, you missed out on Amsterdam this time, but uh, you're definitely up for the next discussion. And, and there are so many people that have historical knowledge and it's not written down, it's not secured. And that pretty much slowly gave me the idea to start a kind of a history project. And to make it easy, I said museum to everybody, but I think World of Cannabis is <coughs> way more than just a museum. It's a project. It's a, it's, it's a cannabis history project. So uh, this is kind of how, where I came into the picture and came onto the radar because, uh, you know, I had been working for Crockett Family Farms for a year, living in California in the Central Central Coast, and I had just finished a, like a year-long contract with him and was kind of searching for what my next big creative project was going to be, like what did I want to work on, and I kind of gotten a little burned out with magazines. I, I kind of didn't want to do magazines anymore. I'd done it most of my career, pretty much all my career. And I was looking for something a little different, something a little more uh, intriguing. And uh, and I noticed you posting on Facebook about all these objects you were acquiring. And I started to kind of have fun with it. And I would see objects and I'd start tagging you like, hey, Jair, what about this one? You know, and tagging you in some of them. And... Uh, uh, in a matter of fact, uh, we were doing that auction for Rick Cusick, my, yeah. my former colleague, uh, Rick Cusick at High Times, and he, he was ill and he needed to raise some money uh, for his health costs, and so they, we auctioned off some very cool items, and you were gracious enough to uh, purchase quite a few of them, I think. Uh, you, you, you bought a, a number of items, and uh, so it kind of got the ball rolling with me and you talking to one another online about things, and so when I finished up my, you know, working with uh, Crockett, I realized, you know, if he's going to be talking about building a cannabis museum and he's got all these items, well, he's going to need somebody to write about the items. I mean, if he's going to put them on display, you're going to need someone to explain what they are, why they're important, and and where they fit in the history of cannabis. And I thought, you know, that would be a fun project for me to work on. Maybe I could freelance and do some of that writing for you. And I reached out to you and... Uh, and you you expressed some interest and but then you you took a few day a day or two and then you called me back with a really intriguing offer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, I figured out. So I'm sitting with all these old people and I'm that are actually all really famous. And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of interviewing them, but I'm not doing it right. I'm not an interviewer. I'm not a journalist, and I'm actually not taking notes. I'm not writing anything down because it was just kind of for my mo my own enjoyment. I give them lunch and they tell me and then I'm like, wow, that's all very valuable information. And I, I started looking around like who can help me and uh, build a museum or can help me do that, a project. And I could tell you that and I looked around and um, well, there's not a lot of people that can actually do that, that have the, the, the knowledge about counterculture history, that have the knowledge about, I mean, uh, you need somebody. I, you need somebody that can work by itself, that can understand, that can run and and fuel the pro the project. 
So um, there was actually one person that pretty much came up in my mind that it was you, and I we met a couple of times previously, yeah. but not not like intensively. But uh, sometimes you just know who the right person for the job is. And after spending a couple of weeks here in Amsterdam with you, I figured out that I actually did something horrible. So Bobby likes to collect things. And I didn't really know he was a collector. So I asked, pretty much I told a hoarder to go and please go be a hoarder and actually pay him to be a hoarder. So, so... <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a little, it's a little more than that. But so, so you came back to me and you offered me, uh, you know, do you want to come on board and help me build this museum? And the only downside is, you said, was you might have to spend two or three months living in Amsterdam to to yeah. help me do that. And I was like, gee, let me really think about that. I got to talk to my wife. And so uh, I I came out here for a few days to do like kind of an extended job interview. I guess you could say, yeah. and we hit it off, and everything seemed uh, seemed to work work out. So, you know, yeah, just a, a a few weeks ago, I came back out here at the end of October, and and uh, since then, I've been here plugging away with you, uh, basically cataloging all of your uh, incredible collection. So far, by my count, we have nearly five, almost five hundred items in the collection that we've been ever still ever still not finished photographing tagging coding categorizing all this stuff and even before i came here i had already started working uh you know doing research into software uh you know into how to start a museum and how to you know curate a, a collection and, and and present a collection and so um yeah, we both don't know nothing about building museums i mean we're a couple of stoners trying to figure it out <laughs> It's a, uh, there's definitely a learning curve, but uh, you know what, it's, uh, I'm confident in it. And, uh, you know, uh, so, so your official title, of course, is founder and curator. Yes. Uh, and now, now my title, I am the new executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum, which I'm very honored to be able to say. Um, and I got to say, I, I'm more excited about this job and this project than I have been anything since I first started at High Times. And, you know, Starting at High Times, those many years ago, 25 years ago, it was now that I started at High Times. And uh, for the first, for the for a long time at High Times, it was really just an amazing experience and an amazing job and so much fun and so exciting. Uh, and, and I really just loved going to work every day and loved my job and loved everything I got to do. And then, you know, towards the end, things, you know, weren't quite as fun, wasn't weren't quite as great. And since then, I kind of was freelancing and trying a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, um, you know, things are kind of feel like they're moving into a new stage now uh, for me and for us. Uh, so I'm excited about the future and, and, and what, what it holds for us. Well, I, I think uh, it's a really big project. Like I said, it's more than a museum. Um, uh, we're, we're already uh, brainstorming for weeks for all the possible spin-offs that we can do. Uh, it's also something we want to do for the community and we want to get our community, our cannabis community involved in this. This is not something we're going to be doing on our own. Um, it's, it's, it, 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 it has to be this place where we can make sure that our collective community soul is being uh, protected and um, where we make sure that it's uh, the people that needs to, that need to get the attention that actually deserve the attention to show what they actually have done in this industry. So, so the, the, the museum is also different. It's, 
it's not a museum about cannabis. I mean, everybody knows by now what cannabis is. I don't need to explain how this is cannabis. You smoke it, you get high. We kind of know that. So this, this museum is more about the cannabis culture. It's never been a cannabis museum. It's a cannabis culture museum. And it's about the, the culture that surrounds cannabis and uh, uh, the people that made it. And that's where it kind of differentiates from, from other museums. It's, it's, it's about the people. Yeah, and that's one of the questions I, I think that uh, I kind of asked you and, and other people have asked me, which is, you know, there's already uh, been a few cannabis museums out there. There's two right here in Amsterdam that we know of. There's one in Barcelona. Uh, one, the museum, uh, Weed Maps Museum was in uh, Los Angeles. That's closed now. But uh, there's been a, a few different ones all around and, and, and even rumors of new ones that might be starting. So the question is, okay, with all these museums, why why another one? Why do What's going to be different about this one? And I think that, you know, you're beginning to hit the nail on the head with that, which is, uh, we're not we're not focused on industrial hemp. Uh, we're not focused, you know, like you said, uh, if you want to see the history of industrial hemp and, and and cannabis in the ancient world, you can visit the Sensi Seeds Museums in, in Amsterdam, Barcelona. They have that very well cataloged. They have hemp looms and things and, and, and models of ships with hemp, <coughs> hemp ropes and stuff. And that stuff is fascinating, and, and we love that stuff. And but, actually in the U.S., that there are a couple of hemp museums that are great, and I definitely don't want to look into yeah, that. Yeah, and, and we're not in any way trying to take away from or disparage anyone else who's been who's been doing this. In fact, we admire them and, and we, we consider them, you know, colleagues. But uh, what we want to do is focus on something a little different, like you said, the culture, the people, and, and focus a little more on the more modern history, maybe from like Prohibition onward, I would say. Uh, I would say it's start, start, the modern start, history start, of start, cannabis start, start, somewhere around 1900 to 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 where we are right now, or maybe to yeah to actually where we are right now. And there's there's uh, a lot of things that we want to discuss and people that we want to discuss that are that have not really been featured in other museums that I've been to at all. Um, and and another thing that I, I would say about it is that uh, that's pretty impressive is that. Every item that you're acquiring and that we are putting into this museum is authentic and original. It, there's no yeah. reproductions or recreations involved, uh, like some of the other museums the, the, I've the, been the, to. Uh, the one, the biggest thing that I saw when I went around museums and I've been collecting, um, like original posters, film posters for already many years. So I can, when I walk in somewhere, I can actually see. In, in, in a fraction of a second, if something is kind of real or not. I mean, at a certain amount, you, you become a specialist often making mistakes. I mean, buying artifacts ain't easy, and you can actually see going through inventorization where I made the mistakes, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a mistake I made. I shouldn't have bought that. That's fake, or I'm not sure about that, so I can't enter a collection. Um, most of the important prints, of the important things that I've seen in museums, are reproduction prints and honestly everybody can go on amazon or ebay or i don't know where and buy those for five or ten bucks and there's like like yeah that, that makes no sense i mean i think i think people come to a museum to to figure out they want to see an original piece and that actually comes from that time and that's also where i see it going wrong because it's not easy i mean finding that uh, one poster that I started today, the, the original Hayes poster, that costed me years. 
they're they're really hard to find. I mean, they they will pop up once in a couple of years on eBay and go for a stupid amount of money. And you want to buy one, but you also don't want to spend a stupid amount of money. Sometimes you still do. <laughs> it's... And then uh, the other exciting thing is that uh, a lot of the items that you've been buying that have not been in the best condition, you've actually took the time and, and energy to have them restored so that they are in as pristine a condition as possible for presentation in the museum. Well, yeah, I figured uh, I figured out that, that things don't need to be, like like sometimes you find this really rare poster and it, 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 it looks like shit. I mean, it doesn't, it's not bad that things look old. They look their age. That's okay. That's not the problem. But when things are torn up and just smudged and dirty, dirty yeah. and, 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 and just, just gunk, and um, then you have such great specialists, so you, you take it to the specialists and you actually get them restored. So we're now busy working on, I think, 40 uh, really special posters that to, to, to just make them pristine, to make them flat, to make sure that there are no pinholes, everything gets moved out. So I think as a museum, you have to show the artifacts in as good possible condition as you can get them. I mean, all the glass that we're going to have, all the bottles that are not in great condition will nicely be restored to a, a place. And it doesn't say over-restore them. It's like a, an oil rag restoration like with a car. I, I'm not going to spray paint everything to beauty. You're allowed to see the age. But when things are torn, you can glue them or put them back together so you don't see the cracks. And that's actually where it's at. So, so I'm not over-restorating. We're just restorating to a point that it's uh, visually nice. Yeah, absolutely. We want it to be as uh, presentable and as exciting for people to look at. I mean, as it was for us. I mean, it was exciting for me just going through the stuff and, and finding those beautiful gems, uh, those those you know treasures from history where you know here's a poster that's that's almost a hundred years old or so that's restored in all of its vivid beautiful color it's it's a pretty exciting thing to look at it's kind of the indiana jones feeling <laughs> you know when you find it's also when, when you've been looking for a certain um, medicine bottle for a long time and you finally find it I mean, uh, you saw the blue cobalt behind glass label bottle that I found that's like 1850. And you saw when it came in and I was just jumping up <laughs> and down and feeling like a little girl on, on, on Christmas morning. And it's like, yeah, I can I can be extremely happy when you find something that, that yeah. you've been looking for years. Yeah, and there's a few items that got me a little giddy, I will I will admit. Uh, a few of those uh, old Rick Griffin posters from the Haight-Ashbury days. And uh, the the old Reaper Madness posters are pretty fantastic, and even some of those signed ones, like that incredible Prop Two Fifteen poster with all those signatures. Yeah, the Two Fifteen poster with uh, the signature of Dennis Perron. I mean, that is kind of rare. I think that's the only one in existence. I don't know anybody. If anybody has a Two Fifteen poster with uh, a Dennis Perron signature on it, please let me know. I will probably buy it. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, but we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from Jair Bellman, the curator and founder of the World of Canvas Museum.
All right, and we are back, uh, coming to you live from Amsterdam, and uh, we are here with Mr. Jair Velleman. Hey, guys. The, the founder and curator of the new World of Cannabis Museum Project, uh, which is a cannabis history project that uh, I am actually involved in and helping him undertake. So we were talking before the break about uh, about some of the items that we were excited about in the collection. Obviously, there's a lot of apothecary bottles. There's a lot of posters. There's books and booklets. There's all kinds of exciting stuff. But uh, as as great as that collection is, part of what we want to do, I th we've discussed doing as we move forward in the coming year, is acquiring some very special items from particular people. And the way we intend to go about that, which is to reach out to the most prominent figures in cannabis history that are still alive. So how do you want to do that, Bobby? You want to dress up like a squad team and just invade our houses? <laughs> <laughs> Give us your swag. <laughs> We're here for your collectibles. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, this is to me, this is going to be a really exciting phase after we're done with all the cataloging. And, and we begin the plans for the, the museum's narrative and the museum's look and all of those things. Uh, part of the fun is going to be doing a sort of uh, American Pickers style cannabis version of that where we reach out to these prominent uh, people, you know, people like uh, Keith Strop, the founder of Normal, people like Tommy Chong, people like John Sinclair, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure those people, if you actually would come into the house, they probably have boxes and boxes of great items to show and great stories to give. So, so that will be... Pretty exciting. Yeah, pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, so if we're able to do that, if we're able to go and, and meet with these people and interview them and, and record, document us going through their private stash and getting those special items that we can then add to our collection for the museum, that's going to be a really exciting uh, adventure for us. Yeah, these are the personal one-off items that we're going to look for at the museum. Like, like, and that's going to be uh, so, so, some people is going to be as in, in, in estates, and some people will be. I, that's the problem on a on, on on doing a history project. So, so the problem is we we, we have a, a kind of a, a time frame because a lot of people are old, and I remember uh, investigating, let's say Neville, and I started investigating Neville, and six months later, there's this big story, and Neville died, and I mean my investigation pretty much got crushed. Because of that, because I really tried to find him and see if I could actually get his story, what well, would be amazing because nobody ever got the, the story from him himself, and that will never happen again. So we're kind of in a in a in a time crush because a lot of people are old and people don't live forever, and we want to make sure that all those stories and all that information is being stored somewhere and being being in in in, in being contained for the for the for the future. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, these icons of cannabis that we're speaking about, and, and whether they're underground or, or well-known, uh, it's not that no one's ever written about them or their stories have never been told. Obviously, many of them have had that. But I don't think anyone's compiled it all into one place. I don't think anyone's taken all these little different stories about this part of cannabis history and this part of cannabis history and kind of compiled into one comprehensive story and i kind of feel like that's what our mission is that's what our mission is and, and, and it will become a story and a timeline 
and we will make sure that that people will find a lot of information on the website that will start i mean the amount of information we want to put out and that's also why i got an executive editor as <laughs> as, as, as a director i mean i mean god you're 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 kind of uh, the king of making content so 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 i mean and that's the kind of the idea of the project and also that was where i fell in short myself and that's why i needed the help that i'm getting right now is that we have to put out the information and it has to be available for everybody and we have to be this this place where where, where people can find archives and where people can find pictures and where can people can find stories and interviews and and everything that got to do with the history i don't need to go to current affairs there are a lot of people out there that do current affairs um there's nobody out there doing the history that's true and the content creation is like i said is what i'm i think you're most excited about because we're going to be documenting not just the history itself but our our journey in building this museum and our journey in collecting that information all of it we want to document all of it on on video uh on podcast on in writing we want to do all this and you know um you mentioned indian indiana jones earlier and uh i mean the first indiana jones not yeah. the last one the last one was horrible yes it was it was um but it's funny because uh, as I was doing my pre preliminary research, I realized I was looking into anthropology, which is the study of human society and culture. So I was thinking about it. The study of cannabis society and culture should be called canthropology. And so that word just came to me and I looked it up online and I didn't see it used anywhere by anyone. And I said, you know what? I think I just coined a new term canthropology and uh so that's what we're going to end up calling our yeah, the first thing we did is uh we made sure we started registration on, on that word so <laughs> Trade, you guys trademark that, yeah, yeah trademark the shit out of it because <laughs> uh, yeah we're going to end up with a museum in the u.s and in the u.s you have to trademark every word you're using <laughs> and you're you're thinking so we we, we were in, in our in, trademark is pending uh yeah but uh, so yeah, canthropology. So you and I are now canthropologists. Yeah, we're canthropologists, and uh... Uh, so we're going to be doing a video series called Canthropology, and I'm going to be writing a uh, a column or a blog that it's called Canthropology. Um, and the idea behind the blog, behind the column, is to uh, well, first of all, we like we we're going to try to do it as a syndicated column so that we can feature it not in one cannabis website or magazine, but in as many as we can so that the information is uh, spread out for everyone to, to see and, and, and learn. Um, but the idea behind it is that each month we take a different item from the collection and kind of talk about it, talk about what it is, why it's important, and put it into the context of the overall yeah, history maybe, of cannabis. And maybe, and maybe have a guest that actually belongs together with the, the, the item. Yeah. So, like if you're having a yippy item, you know, you can invite the right guest. And if you're having, depending on the item, you can invite a guest or we talk to somebody. Or, yeah, we have interesting historical people, figure stories, places. Yeah. So that will be, uh, look, you guys should definitely look out for that coming up. Uh, the blog uh, column in, in your favorite uh, cannabis publication or website and also the podcast which will be accompanying it uh, and that will be uh, also widely available 
So, yeah, keep an eye out for that. And uh, we're going to take another break real quick, but uh, don't go away yet because we'll be back soon in Amsterdam with Chayo Dome. All right, guys, we are back once again and here with Jair Velleman, founder and curator of World of Cannabis, and your host, Bobby Black, the new executive director of World of Cannabis. And we're here talking about uh, the museum and cannabis history and all that stuff. Um, You're Dutch, obviously. You're from Amsterdam originally? Yes, I'm from Amsterdam originally. We should talk a little about, we're here in Amsterdam, you're from Amsterdam. We should talk a little about where Amsterdam fits into cannabis history because obviously it plays a huge role. Uh, For many years, when I started at High Times, there were no legal states in the United States where it was legal to, to get cannabis or smoke cannabis or possess cannabis. There was no medical marijuana. That didn't exist when I first started at High Times. That was something that was created later. And back then, Amsterdam was the only game in town. Like, it was the only place where you could legally buy and smoke cannabis. And we used to look forward every year to coming over here for the Cannabis Cup each November. And uh, we looked forward to it all year. It was exciting. And we love. I, I fell in love with this city over 20 years ago. I've been coming almost every year for a long time. And Amsterdam has a has a really amazing history with cannabis. I interviewed, I mentioned to you a while back, a man named uh, Kays Hokert, who was, uh, yeah, who used to have the first uh, first coffee shop on a houseboat where he used to grow cannabis on the top of the boat, and uh, and then Mellow Yellow was with the first official coffee shop, and Mellow Yellow and the Bulldog, the original Mac, and and, and yeah, no, we we have a rich history. I mean. I mean, I love, I mean, it's still a different market. Even when you look at the legal market in the U.S. and you compare it to Amsterdam right now, it's still a different market. I mean, uh, yes, the concentrates are great in the U.S. and you see amazing indicas. And here in Amsterdam, you see all kinds of foreign hash from Morocco and Turkey and Nepal. And you see a lot of sativas. So, so I mean, they're, they're, they, they, we still have our edge and we still have a special place in, in, in the cannabis in the world of cannabis, actually. Yeah. And uh, so, but on history-wise, I think, and that's also a little bit where the history is, the U.S. and, and Amsterdam are actually being very connected. And, and the U.S. history of cannabis is actually really, like, like woven into the to the Dutch history of cannabis. Sure. It's actually not something that's even, that's more known by people within the U.S. than actually by people in Holland. They don't even realize the, the, the things that, that that happened here in Amsterdam and mostly with Americans actually coming to Amsterdam and and doing things here and actually changing the industry. Uh, I mean, a story that we're going to try to put out and, and to tell is about um, uh, the way that genetics uh, got spread through the U.S. and that, uh, uh, that you will see that started with people like like Sam the Skunkman, who, who who came to Holland at a certain moment, and and met up with people like uh, Neville Schoenmakers, and 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 then you get that whole movement of the seed bank, and the seed bank actually got genetics more stable and actually got higher THC and just just better weed. The normal like five times hay skunk one um, um, important important strains, and they got sent back from Amsterdam to the U.S. And that's the way and that happened through advertisement of the seed bank was actually the first seed bank, I think, in the world. Not the first seed bank, but the first international seed bank. 
and and through advertising in in, in high times that that actually those seeds got back sent back to to to, to the U.S. and that's how actually all the genetics in the U.S. changed from well not so good to pretty good high THE content genetics and that's also how the whole industry got jump started and there are a lot of different stories on this part and a lot of things are true some are not true it's for us to try to clear out the bullshit out of this story and make sure it's actually being told the right way and for that we're trying to talk to most people that actually were there and i think it's really funny to see how much information is still left in amsterdam i mean i know there are a lot of people that are looking for information in in the us but I think people forgot about Amsterdam and I'm enjoying myself for the last three years to actually pick my back garden with artifacts and people and see what it see what happens. Sure. I mean, there's definitely a lot of items in the collection that I've seen that are related to Amsterdam and the coffee shop scene is still thriving, even though a lot of them have closed, but, but the ones that are open, it's still very, very thriving. Uh, everything here is very much the way I remember it. And uh, I think that the exciting thing about Amsterdam for me is is the old school style hash, the traditional imported hash, because you don't get that in the United States. And I love my dabs, don't get me wrong. I love a good terpy dab as much as the next guy. And when I'm home, I, I you know, I enjoy my dabs every day. But when I'm here, I don't, I don't crave the dabs because I really enjoy getting into that old hash and it, it, it has a nostalgic feel, but I just, the flavors are just so, so wonderful. Also, also that's a lot of hash history right there. And I mean, if you're looking in, and that's probably what we're going to also, I hope also going to show in, in the world of cannabis in, in the museum is, is the history in hash because you're every country like Afghanistan and Nepal and, and Lebanon and all those. Uh, Morocco and Turkey and all those hash producing countries, India, you know, Milana and all those great, great, great varieties. Uh, that's all history. And that's also part of the history. And I know everybody looks at American history, but the history is way larger. I mean, in the, where you, you're going to see, we have a lot of items from Nepal in, in the, in the, in the collection and we were trying to find items from everywhere in the world and it's really hard i mean there are places i know they have a big culture of cannabis but there are hardly any artifacts to be found mm. i mean i've been in africa and uh, uh been in south africa and swaziland and there was really mm. there's nothing to be found the only thing i could find is kilos of wheat <laughs> You know, so we were talking about the difference, uh, mentioning the difference between dabs and, and traditional hash. And, you know, over here, dabs and butane concentrates are considered actually in the category of like hard drugs, uh, which is a little weird for some people in the States to kind of wrap their head around. But that's that's how the legal authorities here view it. And so just to go off topic from the museum for a moment, I know that you've been working with someone who has a very uh, uh, special, important case here who's been distributing concentrates to patients here in Holland. And uh, tell us a little about, about Reens yeah, and what's been going on uh, with that. That's um, um, my friend and my business partner, Reens Bainsma, who actually has a, a foundation called, uh, well, in Holland, we call it the Stichting, uh, Stichting Suvernuver. And pretty much um, a couple of years ago, he started helping a patient with some cannabis oil that he made at home. And it helped very well. And he started helping more and more people 
and starting opening up social clubs throughout Holland that actually people could come to him and start helping patients. And this is very illegal in Holland. You have to understand cannabis oil is, is, is illegal. And it ended up after three and a half years that he's helping 20,000 patients for free. Those people are can do a donation if they want to do donation, if they can. So they, 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 it's on a free basis. They can get their medicine. And um, he's doing that for three and a half years now. Uh, it's growing ex a lot. The government until now didn't uh, really intervene. Um, and now finally we're going to trial. We're kind of happy with that because we hope by doing this that we actually maybe find a way for helping patients with cannabis oil in Holland because doctors don't want to write prescriptions. We have a, we have a medical cannabis program in Holland, but it's almost impossible to enter it. <laughs> so, so I mean, you're, you're talking about maybe a couple of thousand patients. While the, the amount of patients that need cannabis oil will be probably tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands. So there are just doctors that refuse or not allowed to write prescriptions. So if people need something and we think they need it, we get it to them. And now it's up to the government to figure out if that's wrong to do yes or no. And understand there's no monetary gain. So this is, this is a full non-profit foundation that shows perfectly how the money comes in and how money goes out and how things are getting paid and the government is total in on everything. And the nice thing on, on, on Dutch law, and that's where Dutch law is different than, let's say, American law, is we have what we call reasonable, like the law needs to be reasonable. And if we figure out that the law is not reasonable, there is a way that, that the, the judge can say the law doesn't apply on this case. And we're hoping that somewhere in the next one or two years that this case will go on, that we will get to a situation that the law will say we will allow you guys to do this and we will legalize those patients. And that will be an amazing win for, for the whole country. So um, that's, that's pure activism, true activism. And it's a way that, uh, that, and I'm supporting that with Rinas, with my legal team is helping him and people that I know and specialists that I know are helping him because this is important for everybody. And um, I really hope that in one or two years, we're going to have a better medical program because of what we're doing right now. Yeah. Like what you were saying about before in the beginning of the interview, when you said that you feel like when you have become successful and gotten a lot out of the cannabis world, you feel like you should give back. And this is one no, this important is, this way is, for you to give there, back. There are multiple ways I'm trying to give back, but... Um, yeah, I don't believe, I, I actually believe in activism and um, actually having the, the financial possibilities to actually hire a, a lawyer and a lobbyist instead of trying to stand somewhere with a sign protesting, but actually try to change things and actually help the people, the activists that, that need the help, that are on the verge of making a change. They need those extra help. They need those extra funds. Sure. They need those specialists, those, that legal team to support them to make sure that they win their case. So yeah, that's something I do. And I will pick and choose and uh, I will help Renus to 
any extent to what's needed to to win. Yeah. And obviously, World of Cannabis is another way of you trying to give back to the community. What is your, your best hope for World of Cannabis? What do you envision in your mind it becoming? And, and, and Well, it's kind of a flu. I mean, on, on, on it, by itself, it's kind of a fluid thought. I mean, the World of Cannabis is not set in stone what it actually is or what it can be. Because if I would set it in stone, maybe I would... Maybe the... The project is way bigger than what I got in my head. And I don't want to keep it down by giving boundaries. So I'm not really giving the project boundaries. I'm, I'm just let it go into the open space and, and let it see where it ends up. And uh, I hope um, that, that it will be a community effort. And I, you have to understand that, and I already said it before, that I want everybody to be involved. And the power of big groups of people and that we can all pull together and do something and make sure that our legacy will be shown in prosperity forever for everybody to see. Yeah, I hope that the world of cannabis will be multi-generational. Well, I know that uh, while we may we may have our, our vision may be boundless, the project itself has a certain time restrictive boundaries when it pertains to the museum because we're shooting for about one year, right? One year to get this museum well, uh, together. Uh, uh, there is a certain restriction on, on, on possible finances. Sure. So the problem is if you start building for many years, that just the, the number just doesn't add up anymore. So we have, uh, uh, yeah, we have to do it in one year. Otherwise, we're running out of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So guys, uh, everyone out there, you should keep your eyes open. Uh, hopefully by late 2020 or more likely or maybe early 2021, uh, we should be hopefully opening the World of Cannabis Museum. We're not sure where yet. Could be Amsterdam, could be San Francisco, could be who knows. But, uh, you know, your initial vision was to have it be a traveling pop-up museum. Well, the, the, the thing is, I started building the museum not really knowing where it would go. And the first thing when you say start telling people that you're starting to build a museum is, where's the museum going to land? <laughs> and as I actually didn't have the answer, I'm like, it's a traveling museum. It's a pop-up museum. It's not specifically that I want it to be. A, it can be a pop-up museum as long as it didn't find the right spot. But at this moment, I just don't know. I mean, we're not aiming for anything. We're aiming for the most epic exposition and the most that a cannabis museum will ever be able to show. And we, we want to do something really special, something that will give you a wow. And also something with mixes old and new. I mean, I don't want to be um, this hallway of old school artifacts. And I mean, this is going to be... Um, virtual reality and television screens and artifacts and Instagrammable moments. And yeah, it, it will be a very immersive uh, museum. So it's, it's, it's not going to be just, no, it's going to be exciting. I mean, if people come in, I want them to walk out and I want them to have that wow feeling almost that good that you're like, Hey man, I want to see that again. Yeah, at the very least that you'll recommend it to all your friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody being to some little shitty niche museum and you walk out and you're like, that was a bad spent $10, $15. And like, oh my God, that was horrible. Uh, yeah, I want to give people true value. 
I want to make something that's that's good. Yeah, and something that hopefully stands the test of time. Yeah, well, that, that's that's going to be the interesting one. I, I won't know after I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, once we're gone, yeah, then it's up to the next generation. But hopefully we can create some type of foundation or something so that it will live on after we're gone. Well, that, that's definitely going to be in there. Yeah. Well, I, I for one, am really excited about it. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, you guys out there, you don't have to wait for the museum itself to open because, like I said, we're going to be documenting our experience all along the way, all next year. Uh, we're going to be interviewing people. We're going to be uh, posting videos, posting articles, all kinds of exciting stuff. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, once again, you'll be able to find links to all of that on our social media, my social media, Jair's social media, and on our World of Cannabis Facebook page and World of Cannabis YouTube page and on our website. Thank you, Jair, so much for sitting Thank down you, and talking to us. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited. Thank you all for listening and for tuning in. This is Bobby Black uh, signing out from Amsterdam. All right. And that's going to wrap things up for this first episode of Canthropology. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum Project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website, worldofcannabis.museum. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover on this podcast, or if you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Beard Brothers Media, as well as Leaf, Canasaur, Skunk, and Nuggle Magazines. Thanks again for listening. Join us again next time when my guest will be World of Cannabis Advisory Board member Rick Cusick, who will be joining me to discuss a publication with a prominent piece of prohibitionist propaganda. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.